0: So Circle Four is a farm that processes and kills 1.2 million pigs every year. And these pigs live in unfathomable
1: misery. Thus opens the 11-minute virtual reality documentary, Operation Death Star, filmed by Condition One in collaboration with a Direct Action Everywhere Open Rescue at Circle Four Farms in the Utah desert. Circle Four is owned by Smithfield. Smithfield Supplies, Costco, and many other stores.
0: So today, we've got four or five hours from now, we're gonna be out there on the farm. Paul's gonna be manning the camera, the rest of you are gonna help me with logistics and
1: supplies. The New York Times headline reads, animal welfare groups have a new tool, virtual reality. Hannah Thompson, a spokesperson for the meat industry publication, Meeting Place, tweeted, calling direct action everywhere an Animal Welfare Group is an extreme stretch. By their own admission, their goal is total animal liberation to which we all nod and say, yep, thanks for that correction, Hannah.
0: Again, if we see an animal who can take out, we'll take them out, but our naming objective today is exposure, to show the world what's actually happening behind these closed doors. So you all ready to go? Mm -hmm. You ready to go?
1: Let's do this. Wayne is looking directly at you here. For the full documentary, you're able to look around in any direction at anything you want. You are basically part of this open rescue. You're listening to The Liberationist Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Rauch. Today, we're going to be listening to a DXE discussion Wayne did on Friday, the day after the New York Times piece was published.
0: This has been a ridiculously amazing week. We were in the New York Times yesterday for a first-of-its-kind virtual reality investigation inside of the largest pig farm in the entire country, Circle 4 Farms. We exposed horrific cruelty, Babies starving to death and rotting to death in piles covered under their mother's feces. Mother pigs trapped in gestation crates despite the fact this farm was marking itself as crate-free. And horrific, horrific violence against thousands and thousands of animals. And it was a really terrifying experience being inside of the farm, but it was also a really inspiring, beautiful experience to save Lily from that hellhole. And the video where we shared Lily's story has now been watched by over 500,000 people, I think. So we're really shaking the world. And obviously, the New York Times coverage was incredible. Um, Very few animal rights stories reach the New York Times. It's the most important newspaper in the world. And we're in the New York Times. But I wanted to talk about a couple different angles that show you the commonality of oppression, how violence against animals and violence against human beings is very deeply intertwined. And I'm going to start the story by going back to the beginning of this investigation. So um, a few years ago, we we knew about Farmer John in Los Angeles, where they kill 1.5 million pigs every year. And the vast majority of the pigs killed at Farmer John in Southern California come from Circle Four, so we wanted to find out about Circle Four. But there was a problem. Namely, that every time someone tried to investigate Circle Four, they ended up in jail or charged. And um, there were four activists a few years ago who really were just trying to document what they called the Trail of Tears, document the pigs going from this horrific farm, this factory farm where the mothers are confined in crates so tight they can't even turn around, all the way to the slaughterhouse. And just for standing on the public street and taking photographs, they were charged, arrested, and threatened with serious criminal offenses, including violation of Utah's ag-gag law. And so in the process of torturing animals and to defend their torture of animals, this farm literally was threatening to imprison human beings as well, to violate human rights. And one really incredible piece of news that just came out a few hours ago was that a federal court struck down Utah's ag-gag law as unconstitutional.
1: This is huge news, and it's the second time that a federal judge has overturned a ban on filming at farms. In 2015, a similar law in Idaho was overturned as being unconstitutional. In this case, US District Judge Robert Shelby essentially said, look, you have a variety of constitutionally permissible tools to address perceived threats to your state agriculture industry, but suppressing people's First Amendment free speech protections is not one of them. An article by NPR says, the challenge to the Utah ban was filed by the Animal Legal Defense Fund, PETA, and Amy Meyer, the director of the Utah Animal Rights Coalition. Meyer was arrested in 2013 while she filmed workers using heavy machinery to move a sick cow at a slaughterhouse in Draper City. At the time, Meyer was on public property. The charges against her were later dismissed.
0: At the same time we're finding out about how much effort this farm was putting into suppressing activism and preventing people from knowing what was behind those closed doors. We're researching this farm, we find some other really interesting things about Smithfield. And one of the most amazing things we found about Smithfield as we we're searching their website, searching their press history, was a disclosure statement on their website about slavery. Slavery at Smithfield. And when I first saw this document a few years ago, I thought, this has got to be some sort of joke. Like They have a slavery statement? And I thought, oh, maybe it's like some animal rights activist pranked them. Or maybe they're talking about animal enslavement, because we obviously do sometimes, and it actually is objectively correct to say the animals are being enslaved. So I thought, oh, maybe they're talking about animals? But no, this is actually a legitimate and true case of human slavery at Circle Four farms in the mid-2000s. And what happened was Circle Four, like all these KFOS, they have a hard time finding anyone who's willing to work at their farm, because they're filled with filth. They're filled with disease, the workers get sick. There's three times the rate of MRSA in these farms, which is a deadly antibiotic-resistant infection.
1: Here's a quote from foodispower.org. Like most agricultural employees, factory farm workers struggle to avoid hazards in the workplace and to earn a living wage. Their work is plagued by a variety of chronic health conditions that persist long after their workday is over. Physicians often encourage workers to leave their jobs. However, most feel they are unqualified for other lines of work. Motivated by the need to support their family, most workers choose to continue working in conditions that pose serious short-term and long-term health risks.
0: So they can't get anywhere to work for them anymore. So what do they do? Well, they enslave people. Literally what they do is they hire contracting companies in Asia, where, you know, I'm from Asia, we have some other folks who have Asian family members, Dechen and Kat and Priya, and we all know that everyone in Asia in a poor village is trying to get to the West because they're desperate to get incomes that might be 10 times higher, Um, Kaushik as well, I'm sure a lot of your friends and family members are desperate to come to the United States. What they do is they take advantage of these people's desperation and poverty. They trick them into signing over their own homes, which sometimes are the only thing these people own. Like, if I don't have my home, my family will starve to death. My family will die. My family will have nowhere to stay when the typhoon comes and, and the entire village is covered of rain and thunderstorms. So they take advantage of these people's vulnerability, get them to sign over their homes with the promise of coming to America, getting income that's 10 or even 100 times higher than what they're getting in Thailand or Vietnam or China, and coming to work at a farm. right? But what these farmers don't know, what these immigrants don't know, is once they come to the United States, they have no rights. They have no capacity to speak. The language, they don't even have an opportunity to talk to their family members anymore once in the United States. And these contracting companies pull a bait and switch. They say, come on over, it's going to be great. But once they get here, suddenly they stop getting paid. They're not given freedom of movement. They're not given the opportunity to contact their family members anymore. And they're threatened if they try and act up and say, hey, this wasn't the deal. I was going to get an income. I'm not a slave. I'm not a piece of property. I'm not, I'm not a thing for you to use and abuse. I'm a human being who deserves basic human rights. But their concerns are completely ignored because these companies are so focused on making as much money as they can they don't care when even the workers are being enslaved right so what happened in this particular case was eventually after a few years and this happened to dozens of people from asia basically they're being trapped here and told if you do anything if you walk out of this compound if you call anyone if you report it anything that's happening here we're taking your home away your children are going to starve right so these people are trapped but eventually some of these people were brave enough to just make a run for it they ran out they found someone who, thankfully, was able to translate for them and talk to them. They reported it to the labor authorities and law enforcement, and this entire place got shut down. And Smithfield was saying, oh, it wasn't our fault. It was our contracting company. But in fact, it was Smithfield managers and executives who were working with these employees on a day-to-day basis saying these employees didn't have no money for food. They're begging them, their masters at Smithfield for food and water because they're not getting paid. How the heck are they going to buy food? All they could eat is probably the pig food, frankly. right? So these managers over this five-year period or four-year period from, I think it was 2004 to 2008, were completely ignoring all these workers who are desperate for basic human rights and basic human needs. And the reason this intersects with what's happening to the animals is because it's very clear from massive amounts of psychological research that when people are immunized to animal cruelty, when they engage in animal cruelty or they see animal cruelty over and over again, they also become immunized to human cruelty. And so for these people, executives and managers at Smithfield, seeing these workers starving to death, not having food, not having income, being forced to live in a compound, not being able to contact their family members, not being able to speak the English language, being forced to work god-awful hours, and not getting any sort of remuneration for it, they were able to ignore these workers' complaints and not realize these workers were suffering because they were so used to seeing dying and rotting animals all the time. If every day of your life, You walk through a pen where literally a thousand mother pigs are screaming at the top of their lungs because their children are being crushed to death, are dying and are rotting to death, and they have no ability to help their kids because they're trapped in a quake, then you're probably going to be very insensitive to human beings who are upset about various complaints too. And that's what happened at
1: Smithfield. Here's a quote from PETA, a study conducted by Northeastern University and the Massachusetts SPCA found that people who abuse animals are five times more likely to commit violent crimes against humans.
0: So, thank God this slave plantation was shut down, and the workers actually did eventually get citizenship because the U.S. government was so embarrassed by the fact that there were all these slaves who were trapped in this farm in the middle of the desert, they said, okay, yeah, sorry about that slavery thing, you're allowed to stay, you know? Um, Which is, you know, a nice thing, but honestly, they probably should have given these people millions of dollars, which they didn't do. And still, to this day, Smithfield denies personal responsibility for it. But as a result of this episode of human slavery, when you Google Smithfield slavery, literally, when you're done with this live stream, go and Google Smithfield slavery.
1: So I did Google it, and I found the page. It is smithfieldfoods.com slash our policies and disclosures slash slavery human trafficking. There's a nice little line below the first paragraph, that says, effective January 1st, 2012, the California Transparency in Supply Chains Act of 2010 requires Smithfield to make the following disclosure as to our efforts to eradicate slavery and human trafficking from our direct supply chain. Which you could basically read as, whoops, we got caught, California is making us do this. But it's not like we care since our business is already built around the fact that we cut up and distribute animals' dead bodies.
0: You can see a big disclosure statement where Smithfield says, oh, by the way, world, we have an official position against slavery. So if you ever see any of our managers enslaving human beings, just let us know, because technically that's against corporate policy, right? It's embarrassing and ridiculous that they even have to have a statement like this, but they do because they know that the company is a violent company. If they don't actually tell people stop enslaving people, then they're going to do it. So we're outside of a dumpster at Circle Four. And they literally just took a mother pig who was sick and not able to stand any longer, threw her in here, head first, with a pile of probably a hundred dead babies. And again, this is what happens at every single pig farm in the world, because they treat these animals as if they're just things, but they're not things, they're living creatures. And they deserve better than this. So the second way Smithfield is a massive violator of human rights is in environmental devastation and racism. So it's all people of color, people from Asia and Mexico, primarily at Circle 4. Apparently it's Asian folks who work at Smithfield and at Circle 4. But it's all these people of color who live there. They live in these horrible residences. And even now, even though they've ended technically chattel slavery, still, if you look at the workers at places like Smithfield, they're all people of color and immigrants. So all these people, they live near these pig farms, and if you've ever been near a pig farm, you know that you're near a pig farm, first of all, because miles and miles away, as far away as 10 miles, you can smell the stench. It is so overpowering, so sick, that it makes you gag and throw up. And I always tell the story about, after we do an investigation, and Paul can attest to this, Priya can attest to this, those of us in the room who've been inside pig farms can attest to this, your clothes, your hair, your skin, even our equipment, like our cameras, will stink for like weeks. Like stinks so badly that even bringing the camera to someone, it makes them gag. Now imagine pigs, these incredibly sensitive animals who have a sense of smell that is a million times more powerful than ours, every single day of their lives, dealing with that stench. And it's not just aesthetics, it's not just about how bad it smells, because this stench reflects real bad things happening at the farm, like dying animals, decomposing animals, liquefying corpses. Antibiotic resistant bacteria like MRSA that is eating away at the flesh of the animals and eating away at the workers too. And one of the most shocking things that's been disclosed about these pig farms is these immigrants, these poor people of color who look at these farms have diseases like pneumonia, like diarrhea, like MRSA at astronomically higher rates than people in the regular population. So the kids of people of color and immigrants are literally dying of antibiotic-resistant infections because big corporations are trying to sell us food at the lowest possible cost. And the result is human beings are being slaved, and they are dying, right? So there's deep intersections between the oppression of animals and the oppressions of human beings. And as we fight for the animals, we should always keep in mind that we can fight for human beings too. And frankly, I wrote an article in the Huffington Post recently about how pig farming specifically is not just a threat to animals. It's a threat to life on this planet because it causes climate change, because antibiotic-resistant pathogens could cause an epidemic that causes a global calamity and global catastrophe. Like right the, the 20th century, one of the things that nearly brought down human civilization was a great flu epidemic. Because you had all these, dru- all these pathogens, viruses, and bacteria that were completely resistant to our immune systems and resistant to the medications that existed. And right now, what we're doing in these factory farms, and especially pig farms, is a cauldron for creating an epidemic. Because we feed these, we confine these animals so tightly, we raise them in filthy conditions. They're all getting sick. They get pneumonia. They get all sorts of diseases. And to, to keep them alive, so we can kill them in six months and harvest their flesh for our own purposes, we feed them a steady dose of antibiotics. It's constant antibiotics. And these antibiotics, day after day, night after night, eating and drinking these antibiotics, are creating superbugs that no longer will be treatable with human medications. All right, folks, we're about to head into Circle Four. This is the heart of evil. You can already hear the screams of the mother of pigs inside. They're cramped, they're suffering, and we're going to try and expose what's actually happening inside. He's ready to go. Let's get lights on. This facility is massive, even just this one barn you can see down here, aisle after aisle after aisle of mother pigs. There are hundreds, hundreds of mother pigs, in even just this one barn. But there's 75,000 mothers just like this, 75,000 stalls just like hers at this site. So we've seen piles of dead piglets, piglets who've starved to death, who've been crushed to death. And we have a little one here whose face is covered with blood. She's half the size of the other piglets. She's going to die unless we get her out. Um, her mother's nipples have been cut and are so overused that they're bleeding. And you can't even get milk out of them. Her children are literally drinking blood to survive. And this little piglet in the corner, her face is covered in blood, and she's down on the ground. She's not going to make it. And so we're going to take her out. Um, we're going to give her the medical care she deserves. And then we're going to take her to sanctuary. And hopefully, she survives. Sweetheart. Alright, I to be real careful. Bring her in. Support her weight. Walk out. And you can see this tiny one right here getting kicked around. The little ones just don't get enough nutrition and eventually they fall to the ground and starve to death. So when we see a little runt like this, who's gonna get thumped? She's gonna be killed by the industry, she's gonna be thrown into a landfill. We try to give them some help. And that's what we're going to do today. So we're going to take you to a sanctuary where she's going to have a good life. And she'll no longer have to fight every single moment of her life for food, for water, for survival. Is ready to go? So when you have no political representation, your people can literally be enslaved and no one will care. Because the mainstream media listens to big corporations, they listen to politicians, and they listen to what the public at large cares about. And if you're a minority that doesn't have much political representation, you can't get your issues onto the table. So again, there's a deep intersection between the human oppression here, with immigrants and people of color from nations where there isn't a lot of political representation in the United States, and the animals, who obviously also don't have any political representation. And eventually we'd like to see them get political representation, just as children get political representation today. Stephen Wise in the Non-Human Rights Project is working hard to get animals basic legal status, to get our legal and political system to conceive of animals as animals and not as things. Because there is a difference between this pouch or this shoe, Or this tennis ball. And Lily, Lily is a breathing, living, sentient being who feels and has a family, has yearnings and desires, and has fear and doesn't want to die. Right? That's not true of this tennis ball. But right now, legally and politically, this tennis ball has in some ways more rights than Lily. Because at least this tennis ball is not being held captive and destroyed and mutilated every day of her life.
1: The work done by Stephen Wise and his team at the Non-Human Rights Project is truly incredible. On their website, you can read their mission statement. We work to secure legally recognized fundamental rights for non-human animals through litigation, advocacy, and education. If you haven't heard of them or haven't checked them out before, go to nonhumanrights.org and read about their objectives and their values.
0: So it's a fundamental problem of our political and legal system. And the only way for us to overcome that and get to the point where animals are treated with even a modicum of decency is for animal rights to become a political issue that's on the table. And that's what we're doing at DXC. We're getting the issue on the table. And we're getting news coverage in The New York Times. When we're getting politicians like Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton to respond to animal rights activists, we're creating a narrative and a platform for which we can finally create real change for animals.
1: Lily and her sister are eating together, drinking together, bathing outside in the sun together. They are incredibly light pink, extremely adorable, and look so much better than they did at the farm. They're going to be able to live now, actually live.
0: When you're in a movement where you're dealing with so much suffering and violence, it's so important to have that beautiful positive vision. We need movements that inspire us to be our best selves, that don't just allow us to wallow in our depression because there are a lot of things to be depressed about, but inspire us to to change the world for the better. And this is why when we do our investigations, we always rescue at least one animal, and often many more than one animal, because we know that positive vision, that hopeful story of an animal who goes through redemption, goes through recovery, and is able to stand again, and, and lives a happy life on a sanctuary is so important. If you don't have that positive vision, we're all going to burn out very quickly. We have to see that, hey, we're doing this not just because of what we hate, but because of what we love. Because we believe there's something so beautiful, so great, so inspiring. God, what else would I do with my life than fight for this? I want this. I need this. I care about this. I believe in this. And the more people who see that positive vision, the more people are going to draw into the movement.
1: Thanks for listening to the Liberationist Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Rauch. See you next week.